Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so that organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Bear SAGE Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are honored. We have the author of The Lost Cafe, Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth, Muriel Schindler. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's going great, Ron. How are you? Very good. Been looking forward to this since I've read the book and even watched the documentary. So really All excited. Right. Yeah, so let's let jump me, into it. Let me read uh, Muriel in here. Muriel Schindler is an employment lawyer, partner, and head of a team at Withers LLP, a law firm, and is a patron of Arbon, the writing charity. She lives in London with her husband, Jeremy, and has three adult children. Welcome to the soul of enterprise, Muriel Schindler. Thank you very much, Ron, for that lovely introduction. Uh, how long have you been with Withers, by the way? Oh, that's a rude question. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me tell you why I asked. I spoke to you guys in 2011 in New York. Ah, interesting. On the topic of value pricing. It was somewhere in New York. I want to say Rochester. I can't exactly uh, it was, remember. It was. It was. You're was quite it? right. Were you um, there? Yes, I was. Wow. <laughs> Unreal. Okay. Fair enough. <clears throat> I've been so. at Withers. I've been at Withers for my firm for uh, just over 30 years. Wow. Okay. I started when I was a child, obviously. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, we work with lawyers and CPAs and a lot of professionals who bill by the hour. And one of the themes of the show is value pricing. So we're trying to get rid of the billable hour and professional firms. But I don't want to talk to you about that today. I want to talk to you about your wonderful book that I thoroughly enjoyed. We've even had some listeners that have already read it and provided some feedback. Um, the Lost Cafe Schindler, it was published last year in 2021. And Muriel, I, I don't know where to start. So I'll, I guess I'll just ask this. Your father, Kurt, he hired private investigators to invest, investigate you and your sister. Uh, he spent a lot of time trying to get restitution from the governments in uh, Germany, Austria. Um, he didn't want you to tell anybody that you were Jewish. What was the relationship you had with your father? Ah, uh, Ron, I feel I ought to be on a, a psychiatrist's couch when you ask something like that. <laughs> um, I, I, when I was a small kid, I loved my father. I was, you know, daddy's girl. I was a bright kid, and he was a very, very intelligent man. Um. However, as I grew up, it's fair to say I started to realize that he didn't always tell the truth and that he managed to have a lot of arguments with a lot of people. And we would do things like we would drive through the night and turn up at someone's house and knock on the door late at night. And, you know, it was very odd behavior, basically. Um, he would be wanting you know, contacts or money or you know, and it was just an odd childhood. And as you, as I grew up, I, re, I 
develop that sense of real, uh, this isn't really quite normal, this isn't what other daddies do. So it was a difficult relationship. And as an adult, I certainly tried to distance myself from him as I very much perceived him to be dangerous, you know, in the sense that he would be someone who would run up debts, not pay them. He would very much try and lean on the fact that I was a lawyer. Therefore, my daughter is a, is a lawyer and et cetera, et cetera. You can trust me, that, that sort of behavior. And so I tried to very much keep him at a distance, certainly in, in business terms. Yes. <laughs> and then he would tell you these stories about how you were related to these famous people, Oscar Schindler, Franz Kafka, Hitler's doctor. Talk about some of those, because some were true, turns out, and some weren't. Some were true. Um, and so he used to essentially brag about who we were related to. So there was Franz Kafka. Um, we are very, very distantly related to Franz Kafka. Um there was Alma Mahler. She was a Schindler before she married Gustav Mahler. Uh, we are not related. She was an anti-Semite and wasn't Jewish, um, but despite the fact she liked Jewish men. Um, he also claimed we were related to Oscar Schindler um, of, of Schindler's List fame. Um, I don't think we are, as far as I can tell. Again, Oscar Schindler was not Jewish. He was a card-carrying Nazi. Yes, he saved a lot of Jews, but obviously he wasn't actually Jewish at the outset, um, otherwise he wouldn't have been a Nazi. Um, then there were other stories, such as the one you've just mentioned, which was the fact that he used to brag about that that his uncle was uh, a Jewish doctor in Upper Austria who had treated Hitler as a child, as a, as a 17-year-old. And the story went that um, this, this doctor in 1907 was sitting in his surgery in Linz in Upper Austria, and a middle-aged woman with beautiful, luminescent grey eyes walked through the door and claimed of, uh, and complained of terrible chest pains. And he was a good doctor. He had an inkling of as to what was wrong, and he took her name, Hitler, Clara, and then examined her and established that she had advanced breast cancer. And he said to her, I will give you some painkillers, come back with your family, and I will explain what needs to happen. A couple of days later, she returns to his surgery and has young Adolf Hitler, age 17, in tow, as well as her other children. And the doctor explains that she will need a mastectomy. And he describes how Adolf Hitler is in tears. He clearly adores his mother and is asking questions like, is there no hope for my mother? And the good doctor explains that, you know, she is very ill, but if she has this mastectomy, there is a, a, a slender chance that she will live for a little bit longer. And the doctor swings into action. He organises the operation. He is present during the operation. And as soon as it is finished, he goes to explain to the children what has happened, including Adolf, who is obviously very anxious. So this is all going on in 1907. And... Um, in due course, uh, I don't know whether you want to get as far as that or jump ahead, but in 1938, obviously, Hitler arrives in Linz. It's his favourite Austrian city. He doesn't like Vienna, but he loves Linz. And one of the first things he does is ask after his doctor. And he makes this extraordinary comment, which is, if all Jews were like Dr. Bloch, we would not have a problem with Jews. And bizarrely, Dr. Bloch was a real figure. He really was related to us, very closely related. And um, he was protected throughout the war. And he eventually 
when the, the Jews were cleared out of Linz, he eventually packed up and left for New York very late in the early 1940s and died in New York. And his, uh, his own autobiography, handwritten, is in the wonderful uh, US Holocaust Museum in Washington. And I've had wow. it digitalized, so it can be looked at by other people and translated. That story of him on the train trying to flee Germany and then the SS stop it and come on board and he's got that note or whatever, the order from Hitler, that saved him, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, he, he left Austria with the most bizarre collection of things. So he left with more luggage than most were allowed to leave with, slightly more money, not much. Um, and he had uh, a Torah sc scroll from his local synagogue and basically a document saying that he had free passage and should be accorded all um, civil behavior, basically, by whoever he met. And he, the, the, the Jews were thrown off the train um, shortly before they reached the border. Um, and you know, it was all rather unpleasant. And um, he marches up to one of the young SS officers who's being difficult with, with them. And, and they're doing it deliberately so that the train misses its connection. And um, he shows this stuff and says he's Hitler's doctor. And immediately the whole situation changes. Everyone is boarded back onto the train and no, no luggage is searched. So it did have a real power. People did know who he was. When did he pass away? 1947. 47, okay. Um, and then you talk about how you come from a long line of distillers and tavern keepers. Uh, and, and your great-grandfather used the company uh, company uh, logo SS, which I found fascinating. Um, yes. And you, and you never met your grandfather. No, sadly, he died in 1952, so oh. I, I never met him. Um, I think through writing the book, I feel I know him. I think there's a, something about spending a lot of time looking at someone's documents and above all their pictures, their picture, their photo albums that allows you to have a bit of an insight into someone who's no longer here. I feel like I know him, Muriel, just from reading your book. That's how, that's how good it is and how real life it, it is. Um, tell us about the cafe that he opened in 1922 with his brother, right? Yeah. So um, my grandfather was a very proud citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he went off and fought in the First World War for his Kaiser, for Kaiser Franz Josef. He survived and he came back to Austria and Austria at that point was destitute. And Innsbruck was particularly destitute because uh, the South Tyrol had been removed from the North Tyrol and given to the Italians. And he did something which I think is almost frivolous. He decided to open a cafe and not just any old cafe. This was going to be the grandest cafe in Innsbruck where you would dance, where you would have wonderful coffee, wonderful cake, and his own liqueurs. And I think it was almost a present to the population of Innsbruck. And it became the social hub of Innsbruck. And um, everyone who was anyone went there, whether they were tourists or whether they were locals, everyone went to the cafe. He had live music. And live music. And, and he loved jazz. He absolutely loved jazz. So the moment jazz hit Austria um, in the sort of mid to late 1920s, it was late to get to Austria. It was one of the first places you could hear jazz. 
and rather the, the rather wonderful thing, um, not arising out of the book, but in a sense, my it's been passed on to my son, who's who is a jazz musician. I, I mean, the the pictures that you have of the cafe it, that are in the book, and then some of the like advertisements or invitations to New Year's party. I mean, they were really well done. Yes, I think he he was very much leaving behind him the sort of sense of lost empire and looking ahead into the 1920s and 30s. And so the, the designs he picked are quite fresh for that, that, that time, I think, very forward looking and less of the sort of red and gold and stuff of, of empire. You talk about some of the things that they served and the cakes and various delicacies. And I just have to ask you this because I cracked up. Why are slices of cake handled with such care? that you don't want to tip them over. I have to so ask you a, that. There's, a, there's an old Austrian saying that, um, I mean, basically a, a, a classic cake will be served on on a cake slice, on a, you know, and you have to do that quite delicately. You have to slide it under the slice and move it onto the plate. And of course, there's a little bit of, if, if you're a little bit clumsy, sometimes the cake will fall on its side, the slice will fall on its side. And in Austrian folklore, if it falls on its side, you are destined to have a, um, a, a terrible uh, mother-in-law. <laughs> the other thing I love that you pointed out is how rulers hate coffee houses. And quoted some historian who said, everywhere coffee is introduced, revolutions have happened. I'm not sure whether that's historically accurate, but I think it's a great quote. <laughs> it, it's too good to check. It doesn't matter. I, You know, Matt Ridley does talk about coffee in one of his books, and he says, yeah, the rulers hated the coffee houses because that's where people would gather and criticize the government. So, well, Muriel, this is fantastic. And, and again, I just love the book. I, I, it was just such a great read. You did such a great job telling your family story, but then putting it in the context of the times. Uh, World War One, World War Two. So I know Ed's got a lot of questions, but folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash TSOE. And that channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Be kind to your mind, hire one. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh my, my fraud. fraud. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back on The Soul of Enterprise with Muriel Schindler, author of The Lost Schindler Cafe. And Muriel, so first off, I want to tell you that I do have Austrian heritage myself. The last, the surname Kless is actually from uh, Salzburg. There's a, apparently a Klesheim Castle, uh, which is now a um, a, a, a casino. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, I have very little connection about my German heritage. I'm three quarters Irish. So that's kind of been pervasive, especially in the States. But that's a, that's another long story. But we're here to talk about you. Yes, is a really beautiful place. I, I, I do. I do want to get there. And I've already looked up the, 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 the Das Schindler now and, and want to spend some time in Innsbruck as well from the descriptions in your book. But I want to talk about a little bit about the history side of this. I have always had a little bit of a fascination with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and how um, while they weren't exactly, uh, let's call it progressive. Well, I guess they were progressive for the day. They they were fairly open with regard to allowing Jews to serve in the military. And it was a fairly open society for a monarchy. So talk a little bit about the impact of the Austro-Hungarian empire on your early family as they, they got to Innsbruck. Yes, it's a very, it's a very interesting question. I think that um, if you, so when, when my family arrived in Austria in the middle of Austria, they, they'd come from the outer reaches of the empire from Silesia and from Bohemia. Um, and the, there was a, a real turning point in in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1867, when um, the, the empire was rebalanced into a dual monarchy with Austria and Hungary, hence Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the, the, the Kaiser at the time, Kaiser Franz Josef, was someone who had not started out being particularly pro-Jewish. He had come to the throne very early at age, I think, 18. Um, but over a period of time, by 1867, he had come to understand that the Jews were actually quite useful and quite important to his empire. They had built railways, they had built factories, they had developed industries for him. And he, he got to a point by 1867 that he said, okay, 
you guys, you Jews, you can settle anywhere in my empire. And this unleashed basically a, a, almost a sort of tidal wave of migration within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Jews started moving into the central bit, into what we now see as Austria, to Vienna mainly, but also to other, other places in Austria. And often they were moving away from, um, you know, further out in the east from pogroms, or they were moving from great poverty. And there was this desire to become German, to leave Yiddish behind and leave poverty behind and become educated and become German speaking. And that was very much the story of my family. They moved not, however, to Vienna, which would have been the obvious place to go, full of Jews, full of synagogues, but they chose a very small, very beautiful provincial town in Western Austria, Innsbruck. And Innsbruck is stunning. And I don't know why they picked Innsbruck, but they did and they settled there. And my great grandmother came from a long line of distillers. And my great grandfather was not a distiller, but he learned distilling. And I rather like the fact that this went through the maternal line and he learned distilling and he set up a distillery and he then expanded that into a jam factory and sold you know, classically the sort of compote, the sort of stewed fruit, what we would call stewed fruit in English. Um, and he did very well. And he had uh, a family with four sons and one daughter. And um, they went, Julie went into, well, three of them went into the business as well. Um, one went to uh, Vienna and became a doctor and one, the, the daughter married and moved to Vienna. So that was a sort of the story of, of, of the family at that time. But you're right, 1867 was a, a an incredibly important moment. Now, it was a perhaps 10, 20 years of really quite liberal um, behaviour towards the Jews. But by the late 1880s, 1890s, these, these threads of anti-Semitism were coming back into society in different ways, in different parts. And I think anti-Semitism is very difficult to, to pin down sometimes. It's not always rooted in the same things. And by, by the time you get to the First World War, there are definite threads of anti-Semitism in society. But of course, everyone is focused on winning the war. And just like in England, they all believed in 1914 that they would be home by Christmas. Um, yeah, that was, of course, not the case. But when my when my grandfather and his brothers his, his, put on their uniforms to fight for their Kaiser, I believe for them there's that moment in time when they believe that they are completely accepted. They're going out to lay their lives on the line for their Kaiser. And they believe that society is going to be kind to them. They are completely assimilated and completely accepted. Of course, what happens later is rather different. Yes, absolutely. And uh, but and my understanding that, that Franz Joseph ruled for a long, long time. I mean, he's, he's almost like the like Queen Elizabeth type long, yeah. long reign. And I think only had one son who 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 committed suicide, as I recall. Yeah, he right? had one son who committed yeah. suicide. And and but curiously, I just his the, the the his son's teacher is Karl Menger, who is was was an economist in the Austrian school, which is one of the foundation uh, the the foundation theories behind our show, <laughs> which I thought was yet another very interesting connection. We talk about Karl Menger uh, uh, fairly oh. often for <laughs> for an awesome for a show, but th this does lead me into a. a uh, and as I only got about five minutes in my my section, so perhaps I'll pick it up on the on, in the fourth segment as well. But the economics of the Third Reich are really curious. It was not 
free market capitalism in any ways. <laughs> it was very state controlled. And it, to the point, and this is the story I want you to tell, they went through a, an incredible amount of detail to get to Aryanize the businesses, keeping records like <laughs> meticulous, meticulous records. T share that part of the story. So when I first started researching this, I had no idea how much I would find or how little I would find. And um, what what really surprised me was to, to understand, first of all, that there were these records still in existence and that they had been largely subsumed into, into the restitution files because my father had fought so many restitution cases. All of these records were part of the restitution cases. So that's how I managed to go back as far as I did. Um, and you're right, the Nazis were extraordinary record keepers. I mean, in a sense, it's a little bit of a cliche, but they they did actually document things and, and force the Jews to document things. So the Jews were, as they were progressively dispossessed of all their civic rights, but also their possessions, they had to make lists. And I've got all of those lists um, that were drawn up by my family, literally down to the last teaspoon. Yeah, it, it just it seems so bizarre. They were in the business of dispossessing all of these people yet keeping these incredible records. You think, well, just take it like if you're going to just take it, just take it. <laughs> but but even um, uh, you, you talk about the, the, the folks who, who took over the, the cafe and the distillery and all this. They were really told what they were going to do with that property. It wasn't like they could say, oh, well, I want to create a, a new business out of this. The, the state told them what the business was going to be. Yeah, that, that's completely right. Uh, and I think the, the Café Schindler was seen as incredibly prominent and important for morale. So it moved from being this incredible jazz café with mu classical music in the afternoon and wonderful jazz in the evening. Suddenly, it, it pivoted entirely in its terms of its business model to becoming a Nazi officer's drinking club. So there was no more jazz because jazz was seen as degenerate music, was completely banned. Um, and they instead sang Nazi drinking songs and, you know, knocked back schnapps. So it, it, it then, and then, then all, all the famous Nazis then basically went to the, the what was now the Cafe Hebel, not the Cafe Schindler, it had been renamed, albeit um, Franz Hebel, the guy who took it over, retained exactly the same branding on, on all the cups. So, so they're just changing the S to an H and just... Yeah move on from there. And there's a curious part of the book that I, I thought was interesting that you have uh, uh, some of the cups from, from the cafe and you didn't realize for the longest time that two of what, two of them were from Schindler and two of them were from Hebel, right? I, I just, it, it sounds like I was uncurious. I wasn't, but they looked very similar and, and it wasn't really until I looked more closely at them. I realized that I had seen all my life. It was an H not an S but I'd never really understood why. And because they were the same, of course, we just used them. We used them literally for our hot chocolate in the morning. Now, I wouldn't dream of using this Nazi cup. <laughs> wow, just it's just an incredible story. Well, we're up against our, our break. I want to remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Our Patreon channel, also sponsored by our Patreon members, Geraldine Carter of Smart Strategies for CPAs, her podcast, SheThinksBigCoaching.com. Take a look at that as well. We're also sponsored by File. They make great expense reporting systems that really think you should take a look at. Makes takes the, the load out of expense reporting. Check them out at File, F-Y-L-E-H-Q. 
Bet.com. But right now, a word from our other sponsors. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Muriel Schindler. She's the author of The Lost Cafe, Schindler, uh, published last year. And Muriel, you know, you talk about in the book the uh, Anschluss, the the uh, Germany taking over Austria in 1938. And things start to kind of unwind there for your, your grandfather, right? He has to start, he gets arrested for tax evasion, which kind of blew my mind. But then... His business, his cafe gets taken over. His He has to sell his villa. Um, walk us through that. What happened? I think it's a fairly familiar story in many ways for any any reasonably well-to-do Jewish family. I mean, this was a, it was not a particularly rich family. They were just, they were comfortably off and assimilated and were you know people who gave to charity and, and were well liked by by the people around them. Roll on to 1938, and you get this this gradual, and it is quite gradual, sort of, but very steady removal and erosion of rights. And um, first of all, the villa is taken away because the the, the, the Gauleiter, the, the regional governor, wants to live in it. We have the nicest house in town. It's been built by a beautiful architect, a lovely, you know, it's beautifully built. And he decides he wants to live there, so my family have to move out. And 
then the cafe is taken away and then the distillery, he has to give up his car. There's a sort of progressive removal of and, and uh, after a stage you know, dehumanisation. You know, my father then is no longer allowed to go to school and they're no longer allowed to wear the dirndl and the and the lederhosen that would have been you know the sort of classic things that they would have worn on at the weekend you know gradually everything is taken away from them they are stripped and there comes a point in time where then they have to emigrate and it has to be said that my family were incredibly lucky they were lucky because my grandmother had the foresight to move to england um, in january 1938 um, they had gone on a sort of tour to have a look to where to move the business to and they decided on London not Paris and not Amsterdam they looked at both but they decided on London and that meant that they had an anchor point abroad and it meant that getting out for my grandfather and for my father was much easier so you know in many ways it was a lucky story and a very happy story because they did manage to emigrate unlike the 65,000 other Austrian Jews who did not make it out you know, your father used to tell the story about Kristallnacht that, that night. Um, explain that to us because you learned something else <laughs> about that story. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a it's sort of central, um, of central importance to this book, actually. Um, we had grown up very much with the story that my father had seen my grandfather being beaten up on Kristallnacht. Um, in, in November 1938 by some Nazi thugs who'd arrived in the middle of the night. They'd banged on the door of the flat that they were living in, forced their way in, and my grandfather had met them at the doorway holding a candle and holding his dog, and the Nazi thug in, at the, at the, who burst through the door then picks up the toboggan, that my, my father's toboggan, a classic Austrian toboggan, beautiful wooden hoop toboggan with a, with a woven seat and metal runners around the wooden hoop, and picks it up over his head and smashes it over my grandfather, with the result that the metal hoop, the metal strip, um, cuts my grandfather's head right, right back to the skull. My grandfather falls backwards and he has his face stamped on um, by one of the Nazi thugs with his hobnail boots. So that was my father's description of what happened that night. Everything is true about that story, except for one thing. My father wasn't there. My father was 13 and he'd already been spirited away to London. And I know that he arrived in London in September 1938. So there is no way that he was there in November 1938. And I only discovered this when I asked the archives in Innsbruck to send me the witness statements from the post-war mm -hmm. criminal prosecution of these thugs. And I expected them to be saying, and I was a good Nazi because I looked after the 13-year-old boy who was a bit scared, or I hid him in a cupboard, or, or something. And I looked right the way through these witness statements, and there was no mention of my father. Oh, this is very strange because... He always said he was there. And then I discovered that um, there was a one photo album, a child's photo album, amongst the 13 albums that I'd inherited. And that nailed it because it said September 38, first day with mummy in London. So it was very clear that he wasn't there. And it was also clear that he had lied about it. I hadn't just invented it because 
I had a psychiatric report where he had talked to a psychiatrist and it was a report that he had put together to help him in a court case of some sort. And again, he describes to the psychiatrist in 1989 exactly the same story. So it wasn't, it wasn't that I had misremembered it in some way. It was a story that he regularly trotted out and may by the end have believed himself, but it's clear he was not there. Right. Remind me of uh, George Costanza and Seinfeld. If it's not a lie, if you believe it. <laughs> uh, so I want to ask you about, is it Franz Hofer? Yes. This, <laughs> I'm asking you this to set up the next question, but explain this guy because he ended up with the Schindler Villa and he's the one that installed Hebel into the cafe, right? Who turned it into a Nazi hangout. Yeah, uh, I didn't like this guy. He was not a good guy. So Franz Hofer was a senior Nazi. He was one of the 42 Gauleiters who were the regional the regional governors, if you like. And he was in charge of the Tyrol and the bit to the west of the Tyrol, Vorarlberg, another province of Austria. And he was a very, very ambitious Nazi. What he wanted to do was to make the Tyrol and the Vorarlberg his area Judenfrei, Jew-free, Jew, to cleanse it of Jews. He wanted to be the first Gauleiter. This was a sort of competition amongst the Gauleiters, basically. And he wanted to win that competition really badly. Thing is, actually, it wasn't very difficult for him to win because there were very, very few Jews in his area. This was not Vienna. There was a tiny number of Jews in his area. So he comes, he, he's actually a, a local in the sense that he was uh, born in Salzburg, but actually went to school in Innsbruck. He knew the area well. He loved dressing up in Tirola outfits, with Tirola hats, etc. He just, he was very, he was very fond of himself. Anyway, he, he arrives in, in, back in the Tyrol and he decides that he wants to move into our villa and he knocks on the door. At that point, my grandmother is in London. My father is home alone because my grandfather is at work. And my father, aged 12 at the time, would have been just about 12, opens the door and this Nazi is standing in uniform at the door, kind of says, can you, can you show me round? And my father shows him round without asking who he is, just shows him round because he's been asked to. And it's only later that he realises that he's just shown the Gauleiter round the family home because the Gauleiter now wants to live in the family home and they have to move out. And this is a sort of, it, it's an interesting story because it, it sort of repeats itself a little bit later, which I think is where you're headed with your questions, if I'm predicting correctly. <laughs> well, my next question is, because this is, is come up, come up and it's basically Operation Green Up. Tell us about the real and glorious bastards. Ah, oh, they are. There's, there's a wonderful, wonderful tale. It's, it's less related to my family in some ways, but it was supposed to be, uh, it's, it's written up as the most successful spy operation of the Second World War. And a young German Jew, um, um, Freddie Meyer, and a, uh, a Dutch Jew and a deserting Wehrmacht German officer, so not Jewish, three, the three of them get together and they are dropped by the American army. Um, onto a glacier just above Innsbruck. And they are dropped with skis and with lots of money, uh, radios, all sorts of ex important equipment. And they make their way down to the Wehrmacht officer's girlfriend's house, which is um, just above Innsbruck. 
in the village above Innsbruck, knock on her door. She is horrified to see him because she was hoping that her her boyfriend was actually safely in a prisoner of war camp mm. and was sitting out the war, not being a They knock on the door and they manage to convince her to take them in, and which she duly does. And Freddie Meyer then sets about spying and he dresses in a, a German uniform and basically goes down to Innsbruck and reports on troop movements, what's happening at the railway, what's happening in the local Messerschmitt's factory. In other words, you know, all, all sorts of very important information is funneled through this incredibly brave young man. Muriel, was some of that information, you know, in the documentary, the Canadian documentary, I watched it last night, they show him, you know, drinking in a bar. Was that the cafe? <sighs> I, I I don't know. I mean, they they filmed it. Um, the the Canadian. Um, well done for watching it. It's an amazing film, isn't it? It um, is. The the. Uh, I don't know where where they filmed it. They filmed it in various places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not. She, I, I spoke to her about it, and she wasn't sure. She didn't speak any German, and so she wasn't exactly sure where she'd filmed it. So I'm not. I, I can't be absolutely certain. I, that it's I was actually thinking about the, the the actual time. Wouldn't that have been in the Schindler Cafe? Where possibly, you, possibly, yes, very possibly. I mean, it would have been the obvious place to go, but I can't for certain say that. And of course, Meyer makes tells Hofer that we'll give you amnesty if you surrender the city. And he does. He's got real chutzpah. I mean, he is amazing because what he does as, I mean, first of all, he is picked up and he's tortured initially. And the Nazis think, well, this guy can't be Jewish because he's withstanding torture so well. He can't be able to do it. It doesn't fit with our view of what Jews are like. And then someone thinks, well, actually, he might be quite senior, might be quite useful. And they get it into their head that he's a senior American officer. He's not. He's a really, really junior but soldier. And they sort of brush him down and wash him down. And they take him to see the Gauleiter. And the Gauleiter sits down to lunch with this boy who's just essentially been tortured and says, do you think we're going to win the war? <laughs> Freddie <laughs> Meyer then says, nah. <laughs> You're not going to win the war. <laughs> so they have this exchange, and over a series of a couple of days, um, Hofer, who's always out for his own benefit, he convinces Hofer that he will give him and he will keep him safe, that the war is lost if Innsbruck is handed over without a shot being fired. And that is why Innsbruck is so perfectly preserved. It was never bombed. I mean, it was bombed around the station, rather, but it, the, the Baroque, the Baroque, old medieval and Baroque centre of Innsbruck has not been bombed. And so, you know, no one died at the point where the war was lost in Innsbruck. And your grandfather got the cafe back in 49 and reopened yeah. it shortly thereafter, right? And then he died later on at the age of 64. Yes. And the cafe is still there, but it's new ownership. I, I found it charming that the guy had hired a piano player who played in the original cafe in the fifties or something or whatever it was. That was yeah. amazing. Um, I think it's a testament, I think, to a good business. You know, it's going to celebrate its hundredth anniversary this year. It's centenary in 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 twenty two. It was opened in nineteen twenty two, and we are twenty twenty two. So it's not. It's no longer owned by a Jewish family. It's, I don't have shares in it. But it's a brilliant place, and I'm really proud that it's got my name on the front. Yeah, that's that's so real. That's so cool. Uh, I, I got the impression that your dad really cared about his his team members, his his workers. He he really yeah. 
felt a, a deep responsibility to them to take care of him. And yes, I mean, even right. when he was fleeing the country, he was right. writing to try and make sure that the people he 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 worked who worked for him were looked after by the new owner. And just one other thing, and then I got to go, but uh, we're up against it. He he installs Frank Hebel to run the cafe, who your dad, who your grandfather sub subsidized after he ran into trouble after the war. He sent him some money, didn't he? I uh, Yes, I think so. I mean, I wasn't really able to prove it, but it, it felt like the sort of thing he would do. So Hebel was in hiding the well, most of the most of the senior Nazis who went in, but went into hiding basically. And um, my grandfather arrived back, and the the wife who had two small boys of Hebel came and basically asked him for some money, and he gave her some money. That's at least what I could what I read in the paperwork. I, I can't absolutely prove it, but I think it sounds like the sort of thing he would do. Wow, that's unreal. Well, Muriel, Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home. I just wanted to say thank you so much for appearing on the show, and I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I hope people go out there, get it, read it, thoroughly enjoy it. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at bearsage.com. And now we want to hear from Sage and the rest of our sponsors. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My my fraud. Fraud.
We don't follow. We lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is The Lost Cafe Schindler. The author is Muriel Schindler. She's with us today on The Soul of Enterprise. And folks, while we have been talking about f- snippets in this book, you got to go out and read the whole thing. It's it's just uh, absolutely fantastic. There are so many nuances to this and and t- really twists and turns that uh, that make it just a, a great read. A um, couple of questions for you. So have you given any thought as to who's going to play your father, grandfather, aunts and uncles in the movie? <laughs> Oh, well, great question. Um, um, so, I mean, there's some interesting people. Um, in terms of British actors, um, Stephen Fry does a quite a menacing kind of Nazi, I reckon. Um, he did a very good job uh, reading some of the Rat Line, if you've read the Philip Sands book. Um, and he did, he's very menacing. So if you were looking for a British actor, um Liam Neeson might be good as well for for one of them. Um, oh, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult. I do have moments where I sit in the bath and think, oh, my goodness, who will pay, play me in the play? <laughs> you know, it- I had uh, uh, we are, Ron and I are big fans of, of the, the show that was on Amazon Prime uh, featuring Rufus Sewell uh, playing the uh, the American Nazi. I don't know if you've uh, seen that. Yeah, that would so, be good, too. That yeah. So maybe he, he he maybe wouldn't play the Nazi in this one. We'll give him a break from Nazi parts if you know when he, when they come knocking on his door for that. Uh, so I also I listened to the book on um, uh, on Audible, and I'm curious why didn't you narrate it yourself? Ah, oh, that's a yes, that's interesting. I was given the opportunity to narrate it myself. Um, and I think there are two different. There might be an American Audible and an English Audible. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, I was given the opportunity to, and I just felt it was a job for a professional. I had done some narration. I'd spent some time, I'd spent four days in studio um, narrating uh, all of the stories of Innsbruck and the, and the Kristallnacht pogrom. And that was incredibly tiring and really difficult to do well. And I just decided I wanted someone professional to do it. Fair enough. The uh, Ron alluded to the, the the fact that you your family did get most of the the property back at a at a certain point after the war. There's, there's great stories about that, folks. So read that. It was uh, just as meticulous on the way back into the family as it was on the, on the way out with the, the record keeping and all that you had to do. At one point in the book, you mentioned the fact that the villa which, yeah, as you said, is, is still there, was up for sale at one point, and you, you thought about maybe doing it. Has, has it? has it? Do you know if it's transferred owners now, and has anybody done anything with it? So one of the things that happened, so the, the, the current people who are in the villa are part of the Innsbruck University, and they do basically research into cell biology and things like that, um, and not my area. And... Um, they are. They were looking to move into bigger premises, and so it was clear that this was going to come on the market again. And um, I, it hasn't happened, I don't think, yet. 
but it would be it would be amazing if it was a family home again. I think it would be really really nice because at the moment it's divided up into small offices and into um, cell sort of labs and things. And I think it would be amazing if it was back in in family ownership. Did you get a chance to go in there? I, I, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I went. I went round it, um, and uh, there's not an awful lot left. The, the terrace is the same. You can see from the photos, and um, the the main um, living room living space is the same. It's got a parquet floor, and you can see the the cocktail cabinet and things. But aside from that, I think it's been primarily sort of turned into offices and and labs. Gotcha. Talk talk a little bit about getting the the the, the property back, and because uh, I, I I don't we don't have much time, but I want you to give a little snippet of that story because that was quite fascinating as well. So, um, in terms of the cafe coming back to us, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, the cafe. Um, so the cafe was restituted to my grandfather, and it had been bomb damaged, so it had been closed for a little bit, and he does the same thing that he did after the First World War. He builds the cafe up and he opens it to his beloved Innsbruck and it's incredibly successful and it's a beautiful place to go. The sad thing is that he dies in 1952 and my father inherits the cafe with his cousin, his first cousin, and they try and run it together but neither of them are businessmen and my father manages to fall out with everyone and the cafe is eventually sold and it staggers on a little bit longer with the name because it's got such a good brand. Then eventually the name disappears off the high street. And when I went to school in Innsbruck, which I did from the age of 15 um, onwards, um, the cafe didn't exist at all. Um, but it had lived on in people's heads, in their imaginations. And so whenever I went round to a friend's house and spoke to the parents or their grandparents, they all knew the cafe. So everyone talked about it when I gave my name. And they used to say how they danced there or they snuck out and met their boyfriends there, etc. cetera. And um, it, this, you know, this just lived on in people's heads. And in uh, about now 10 years ago, um, a young restaurateur arrived in Innsbruck, wanted to open a restaurant in the exact same building. And no matter where he went, everyone said to him, my friend, it has to be called Cafe Schindler. And so as a result, he then opened it as Das Schindler or Schindler's Place, if you like. And so now it's back. And I'm, I'm very proud that it's back. Yeah, yeah f- fantastic close to that story. And you say it's, it's going to be celebrating its 100th year. Are you going to are you planning on going there? Absolutely. I'm back there in April. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. What we only got about a, a minute left. Did you wrote, finish this book and wrote it just before COVID hit? Did, did, was there any impact of COVID at the very tail end? Did you need more research time or had you gotten everything that you wanted done? I probably would have gone back to, to Bohemia. I hadn't really explored Bohemia properly. Um, and I might have gone to Upper Slightly Easier, which is I might have gone back to sort of the outer reaches of, of my empire family. Um I spent, I spent a lot of time talking to the academics and they said, look, there's nothing really very much to see, but I'm a great believer in walking the streets. So I, I missed out on doing that as a result of COVID. Yes. Outstanding. Muriel, thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And, and folks, please go get the book, uh, listen to it on Audible, uh, and uh, we, we love to hear your comments on it. What do we got coming up next week, Ron? Ed, we're going to do subscription economy update next week. All right. Sounds great. I'll see you in 167 hours.
This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes with our interview with Muriel today and where you can find her book. Also, you can contact me or Ed at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.